The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. I'm Patricia Halligan. Welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. We can't talk about recovery from addiction without talking about trauma. Research tells us that among people seeking treatment for substance use disorders, lifetime PTSD rates range from 30 to over 60%. This is a complicated group that tends to have worse outcomes when compared to either disorder alone. Traditionally, people have treated PTSD and substance use disorders separately, one at a time. Today's guest, Dr. Lisa Najovitz, wrote a groundbreaking treatment manual on how to treat PTSD and substance use disorders concurrently. That manual is called Seeking Safety. It treats men and women, adolescents over the age of 13, can be done either individually or in a group, is research supported, and has been translated into 14 languages. Dr. Lisa Najovitz, PhD, is Director of Treatment Innovations and Adjunct Professor at University of Massachusetts Medical School. She was on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for 25 years and was a research psychologist at Veterans Affairs Healthcare System in Boston for 12 years. Her major clinical and research interests are substance use disorders, trauma, comorbidity, behavioral addictions, veterans' mental health, community-based care, development of new psychotherapies, and outcome research. She is author of over 200 professional publications, as well as the books Seeking Safety, a Treatment Manual for Trauma and Addiction, Finding Your Best Self, Recovery from Addiction, Trauma, or Both, and a Woman's Addiction Workbook. She has served as president of the Society of Addiction Psychology of the American Psychological Association and has consulted widely on public health efforts in addictions and trauma, both nationally and internationally, including to the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, NIH, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Surgeon General, the United Nations, and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. She is on various advisory boards and has received awards, including the 1997 Young Professional Award of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, the 1998 Early Career Contribution Award of the Society for Psychotherapy Research, the 2004 Emerging Leadership Award of the American Psychological Association Committee on Women, and the 2009 Betty Ford Award of the Addiction Medical Education and Research Association. She is a licensed psychologist in Massachusetts and conducts a psychotherapy practice. She received her PhD in clinical psychology from Vanderbilt University and her bachelor's degree with honors from Barnard College of Columbia University. Dr. Najovitz, welcome to the show. Thank you. What can you tell us about the relationship between trauma and PTSD? 
very glad you brought that up because certainly now, and it's such a healthy development, there is now much more awareness of trauma and PTSD than ever before. What used to be associated just with males and combat or just not acknowledged has become at the forefront of public consciousness. The words trauma and PTSD are now in the public sphere. People recognize these as very important. That being said, the terms have also become somewhat loose. And sometimes it can be that trauma gets applied to almost anything that is stressful. But really when honoring the term trauma at the deepest level, it really does impact the person in profound and enduring ways when it leads to PTSD. So there are a couple key points to note. The first one, and this is great news, is that the majority of people who go through trauma do not go on to develop what we call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That being said, a significant portion between 20 and 30% do. And very important to provide treatment, to provide resources, to help people as early as possible to overcome the impact of trauma. But when we think about the definition of trauma, one of the challenges is that there is not one definition in the field, but several. So there's a more narrow idea of what it is that refers just to a physical event that may have occurred. Uh, This is the classic definition in the DSM-5, which is the psychiatric naming of mental disorders, Mm -hmm. uh, where it focuses on physical events. There is also, though, what we know, there can be tremendous emotional trauma that may be non-physical in nature. So things like emotional abuse, Mm -hmm. severe bullying, and so on. Um, So in general, we want to separate out trauma in and of itself um, from stress, stress being the difficulties people have going through the day versus trauma, meaning something more profound that impacts people on a much larger and deeper scale. Okay, that's very helpful. Let me ask you if you can give us a glimpse into the suffering of a person with PTSD. What are they feeling? What are they thinking? Uh, How does PTSD affect their, their heart and their mind and their soul? Yeah, and it definitely affects every level of the person. Mm -hmm. So all of the ones you just named beautifully, and also the body. Um, It affects the thinking, it affects relationships, and it affects, and this goes really to one of the most painful aspects of it, the person's sense of self often. Mm. And for many people who have lived through profound trauma, it can affect their trajectory in life, really impacting what happens, what they feel capable of, what they feel they deserve. At any level, trauma can impact uh, physicality, Mm -hmm. holding stress in the body, holding tension, having greater physical ailments. They can have a perception of distrust of other people that goes beyond Um, what someone else might experience just based on their own experience if the trauma was interpersonal. Mm -hmm. They can experience um, feelings of being damaged, feelings that they are the problem. 
Uh, they can experience a sense of tremendous isolation and loneliness, a sense of splitting at times. Part of them feels like they're okay, and another part of them, sometimes cropping up unaware, unintended, feels very upset, very distressed. So long and short of it is it affects the whole person in many different ways and often is changeable over time, which is what makes it so hard for people who suffer with it. So the person feels damaged. I've heard that frequently. They feel like they're, uh, they're either dirty or they're damaged. Uh, they feel like damaged goods. They don't trust. They might feel like they're a victim. They feel disempowered and they may not have uh, a sense of agency or confidence in themselves or a sense of empowerment. Yes, all of that. And two of the core issues I often think about are control and secrecy, that control was taken away during trauma. And when we go on later to talk about addiction, control is also taken away as part of addiction. So whether someone has either or both of these issues, control goes to the core of it, feeling out of control feeling that they can't do what they need to do in life to move forward. The other secrecy, and here too for both trauma and addiction, a sense sometimes of needing to hide it, feeling deeply ashamed, feeling guilty, feeling that no one will understand. That's the worst feeling in the world because you're feeling like you're leading a double life, the internal life of the trauma that nobody can validate, nobody can see, and you feel like the walking wounded, or you feel dead inside, or you feel damaged, but yet you're going through the motions of regular life. It's very isolating, isn't it? And very damaging, very shaming. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wonder um, if somebody walks into your office, what kind of psychoeducation do you give them? if they're feeling damaged, to help them feel a little better about themselves, what, what PTSD psychoeducation would be healing in maybe the first visit? What do they need to know, the person suffering from PTSD? Yeah. And this is one of the ways the field has progressed so much is now there really is a focus exactly on what you just said, which is education, mm -hmm. that that in and of itself is so healing, just to know there's language for these experiences, whether it's the ones we've just discussed, such as trauma, PTSD, also symptoms like dissociation, splitting, mm -hmm. uh, uh, hypervigilance, etc. So First of all, giving language to their experience helps to validate that it's real, that it matters, and to convey also the idea that there is a lot of hope that this can get better with treatment or with other resources that may be there for them. So the first step really is that education piece around naming, and then also, I think, building a, a sense of hope that if you do the work of treatment or recovery, you can get better. And you know what I loved in your book is you had a, a quote that said, PTSD is a normal reaction to an abnormal event. And you also said, no wonder you used substances. It, you normalize it, of course, to take yourself out of this psychic pain and physical pain, emotional pain. It makes sense to medicate, self-medicate with substances on some level. Yeah. And that 
phrase you just quoted, a normal reaction to abnormal events, actually comes from the DSM-3 definition in 1980. And there are a variety of reasons why that didn't uh, get retained in DSM-4 and 4R and 5. But that being said, it still speaks very much to what it can feel like. And Absolutely. There is a strong connection to addiction and addiction of all kinds. We often think about substance addiction because, of course, it is such a huge public health epidemic and it Mm -hmm. is so devastating both to the individual, to their family, to their community. But there are other addictions as well and often go under the radar, often go unassessed in treatment programs or elsewhere. So, Some of them defined in the DSM, such as gambling disorder, others Mm -hmm. not defined, but that we know are problems for some people, especially after trauma or in relation to trauma. So things like spending or shopping addiction, excessive Mm -hmm. gaming, Mm -hmm. internet, pornography, and one could go on and on. Absolutely. And eating disorders. I think I read a study where 30% of uh, people with eating disorders have underlying uh, trauma at least 30 to 50%. So yeah, and like you said, compulsive sexual acting out behavior. uh, Yeah, trauma seems to be present in many process addictions, as well as the substance use disorders. Why might somebody with PTSD use substances? Yeah, that is such a core question. And the immediate answer is typically trying to escape from the emotional pain of trauma. But it's really important to recognize that there are actually many pathways. So the primary one is that one, that trauma occurs first, and then some sort of addiction develops, typically experienced by the individual as just trying to numb out or just trying to feel different. Um, But It also goes the other way, that addiction sets people up for trauma. So if we think about vulnerable situations, driving under the influence of alcohol or getting into crime-related situations where they may be physically assaulted while they're buying drugs, et cetera, et cetera. There are many pathways that also go the other way, where it's addiction first and then trauma. And certainly for some people, it happens both at once, early on, typically in their family or their community, where both trauma and addiction are pervasive, and that's their experience growing up, and the two have been connected from early on. So it's a coping skill that they learned, or they're using it um, so that they cannot feel uh, some of the fear associated with PTSD. Uh, so, and sometimes uh, they're using it to feel uh, because they're so numb because of the PTSD. So many different reasons why somebody with a history of trauma would use substances. And if you have somebody walking into your office and they ask you, what are the treatments that are available for me right now if I want to get better from my PTSD? What kind of treatments are available uh, in 2021? Yeah. And this is another place where the field has grown so much. It's just been profound how the past several decades have really seen a blossoming of many different treatment types. And really important for people to know that they can try different types. They can switch if one thing doesn't work to try another. Uh, Certainly, it's also important to emphasize it's not just the treatment, it's also the provider. So making sure it's someone that they feel that they have a connection with, that they feel is trying to help them and Mm -hmm. is helpful. Mm -hmm. So 
the combination of the treatment plus the provider. In terms of the actual types of treatments, generally, there are some that we might call past focus that go into the narrative of trauma, the story, Ah. in one way or another. And those have been the classic PTSD treatments for a long time and for good reason, because it makes sense that if someone has lived through a horrific event or series of events, that talking about it can help to work it through, to process, to feel the feelings, to go through the memories. Mm -hmm. However, What's often under-recognized is that another approach is to stay just in the present. And that does mean things like learning coping skills, working on what you can do now. And luckily, uh, both types work Mm -hmm. and people sometimes have preferences for one reason or another. They prefer to do one over the other. They may have more access to one type over another. So there are a lot of different possibilities. It's also important to emphasize now there are more options around peer support. There's more education. And certainly when addiction comes into play, then there are also additional treatments related to addiction as well as self-help. Absolutely. And most of the people I encounter with PTSD will say to me, oh, I can't tell my story. Uh, it's, it's too painful. I'm afraid it's going to make me use again. I'm not stable enough in my recovery to delve into telling my trauma. Is it true that you have to tell your story in order to heal from PTSD, or you have to become emotionally distraught in order to actually move through the, the trauma in order to heal? That is one of the most important, I'll call it myths, uh, areas to address because it keeps some people away from treatment. Absolutely. Because there is often a belief that if I go into therapy or counseling, et cetera, I'm going to have to dive into that pain. And the fact is what we know from research and we know now from many decades of many different treatments being studied that it is not required to delve into that trauma story, that one can stay in the present. So seeking safety is one example of that kind of approach. There are others as well. But the idea is that a person may choose based on just their preference, their personality, based on perhaps having in the past done past focus work and now wanting to try something else. There there are a myriad of reasons why someone may not want to go into their trauma story. So really important to not make the assumption that the more intense the treatment is, the more powerful it is in terms of outcomes. And that's often part of the myth that A, they have to do that kind of work and B, that kind of work because it's more painful automatically means it's more powerful and better. But actually, research doesn't show that that's the case. I'm so glad that you've addressed those myths. What about the myth that time heals everything and just wait it out? This will get better on its own if it's PTSD. Yeah, that is another really essential point because we certainly know within one to three months of trauma for many people, they may have some initial symptoms. It's natural to to be distressed to some degree, but the people where it does continue, where it lasts, and it actually becomes a diagnosis, a formal disorder like PTSD, 
At that point, it doesn't typically go away, and they do need usually some sort of help for it. And so the idea is not to be ashamed, not to feel alone with it, not to feel that there are no options, and to reach out, to read as much as possible, and to try to get some help. Now, the one thing I loved about your manual, um, Seeking, Seeking Safety, when I bought it like 19 years ago, is that it focuses on coping skills. And it focuses on emotion regulation. And it's hugely kind and gentle and practical. Can you say something about your present focused treatment model, Seeking Safety, and something about the title? Yeah, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I'll start with the title, which in its essence, is laying out what the goal is. And the model gets used for people who have trauma issues, who have addiction issues, or one or the other. So they don't have to have both. And the skills that it addresses, the coping skills, are broad enough that the goal is to apply them to whatever's going on in the person's life. So each session is a different coping skill. Some examples are asking for help, setting Mm -hmm. boundaries in relationships, safety, which goes to the essential goal to attain safety from trauma, safety from addiction, safety in their relationships, in their thinking, in their behavior. Um, Other topics include things like recovery thinking, um, self-nurturing, compassion, honesty. So basically a wide variety, 25 different topics about evenly divided between cognitive, meaning thinking, behavioral, meaning action, and interpersonal, meaning relationship skills. And the idea is that people can move around within the model very flexibly to go to what matters to them. There is no one approach to recovery. And the bottom line idea is use what works, let go of the rest. And so trying on different skills that maybe they haven't tried before or trying them in new ways and resolving or at least addressing what's currently going on because trauma shows up in the present. And so it's what can you do today if you're having trouble with dissociation, you're spacing out, you don't feel real, you're numbing, Mm -hmm. or what can you do today if you're having fights with people and you're just very irritable and you can't contain it? What can you do if you're having nightmares from trauma or impulses to use a substance? So on and on in the myriad ways that people get affected. You know, it's so wonderful. The favorite topic out of these 25 topics that I have, um, earmarked is detaching from emotional pain, the grounding. So if I were a client in your office, can you give me some examples? Say I'm in emotional pain uh, because I'm in a bad relationship with a boyfriend who's addicted, who's abusive to me, or I'm in emotional pain because I'm having flashbacks of my trauma or emotional pain because I'm grieving. Uh, I watched somebody die. Can you give me some grounding examples, physical grounding, mental grounding, soothing grounding that might take me out of my emotional pain. I just love that chapter. Yeah. And I'll mention that I learned grounding when I was a clinical psychology intern at a hospital uh, way back in the early 90s. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, 
clients are so helped by this. It is so profoundly simple and practical, almost deceptively so. It looks almost too easy. But what it gives people is the essential ability to shift their emotional state and to do it quite quickly in a matter of minutes. And they can do it anytime, any place. So it's an extremely portable skill. And many clients have said to me, they wish they had learned this 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's what's learned often in families naturally. Healthy families naturally teach grounding, which is essentially a way to help regulate emotions when negative emotions get out of control. Um, so what are some ways? Uh, and you just named the three categories as they're described in Seeking Safety, physical, mental, and soothing. And the mm-hmm. idea is to try out a whole variety and then see what works for that person. So examples of physical grounding might be to roll um, a ball in your palm of your hands or a stone or touch something physical. It might be to run your hands under cool water if you have access to that. One of my clients would um, carry around a miniature bottle of hot sauce and smell it. It would bring him right back into the present. wide variety of physical activities, depending on where the person is, it could be doing some jumping jacks, it could be taking a walk, anything that sort of gets them back into their body in a positive, healthy way. And the core of grounding is back to the present because the person is often triggered or craving or something that harkens to the past. So we're trying to get them right back into the moment. Mental grounding, it's basically... um, all kinds. It can be game-like things like name all the cities you can name or name all the sports teams, uh, name colors around you, just looking around the room, etc. And soothing grounding is really trying to get at reassurance. And one of my favorite ways of that is just having people name favorites. Um, name your favorite color, your favorite place, name a favorite person, name a favorite animal, a favorite TV show, a favorite song. And just getting back in touch with some of those favorites can be a nice way to do it. Uh, Identifying a safe place and so on. The key thing with grounding is to rate feelings, level of distress before and after to see if it worked. So when we do it as part of seeking safety, we encourage people to rate before they start grounding from zero to 10, 10 being the most distress. They might say, I'm at a seven, I'm at an eight, I'm really up there. Okay, let's do some grounding and then re-rate it after it. Um, And now what number are you at? So re-rating on that same zero to 10 scale, even if it doesn't go down hugely, if it goes down just a point or two, it shows the person that they can shift their emotions. And in the book, you suggest that the person even create a recording, like a a soothing grounding recording, so that the person maybe who is caught up in a flashback or in an intense craving for cocaine or alcohol, who can't think at the time, or who's really angry because of a fight with a father or a mother or a significant other boyfriend, uh, and then you can pull out this soothing uh, grounding recording and listen to it. Uh, and it, it might just be exactly what you need to take you out of that emotional dysregulated state to prevent you from using drugs or, you know, prevent more suffering. I, I love I love your examples. That's the most useful piece of the manual for me and my clients, and they've just used it over and over. What if you were going to put something on a 
a recording in terms of soothing, uh, grounding, what would you say? Yeah, and I can give a couple examples here. I'll also mention that what can be really beautiful to do is to have the person also get important others in their life to add to the recording. And I've seen clients do things from you know, getting a whole variety of trusted family or friends or their AA sponsor or just important people, even taking little snippets of recording they've found on YouTube that they find calming and putting that on. I've seen people even go as far as to create a little video, um, you know, where they make it more than audio and they actually add in imagery and things like that. So many, many ways to get creative around it. And in general, um, I think as long as it's a very compassionate tone um, that really speaks to what that person tends to struggle with, I think that's when the kind of recording can become so valuable, uh, reminding them of the other parts of themselves that they may be disconnected with from right now. So for example, right now, maybe you feel like you want to die. Maybe you feel like it, it's just not worth trying anymore. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel like you've screwed up and it's all over, whatever it may be. Um, there is another side of you, the side that has already come this far, that has survived so much. And that side is still within you. Try to get connected to that side of yourself and on and on trying to figure out ways of reconnecting. Because we certainly know that when people have been through you know, the real horrors and challenges that relate to addiction, to trauma, that something in them survived. And that in and of itself is just so worth honoring and remembering. So what, number one, your voice is super soothing. I feel like my blood pressure come way down just listening to you. You're very comforting. You're very kind. And that's what you want on the recording. You want, I love the idea of having your sponsor or your friends or family members that are loving and validating talking on this recording, using that same voice that you're using, uh, very compassionate and very non-judgmental, because I think it helps you detach from your emotion so that you can say, I am not my emotion. And uh, I can slip back into a rational state of mind, into a place of calm with perspective, right? It's very yeah. empowering what you're saying. Yeah, and I really appreciate you just brought up that word empowering, because empowering is in some sense, so healing for people to, to regain, to retake the power that was lost in trauma and lost in addiction. And how can they do that? So I think there is a chapter on empowering yourself. I think it's uh, using uh, compassion to take back your power, PTSD, taking your, your power back. I think that is one of your topics. How, how do you take your power back? Yeah, that in, in a sense, it varies for people in all kinds of ways. Um, that's what's so amazing about watching the recovery process is that people go about it and succeed at it in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. So it's very individual and uh, what works for one may not work for another and that is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, taking back power, typically there's a piece of it that will involve compassion for the self, meaning 
looking at oneself and trying to forgive oneself uh, for whatever may have happened along the way. Sometimes there is tremendous blame that is so undeserved. Mm. We know that children blame themselves for trauma, even though obviously we know they that they're not responsible, but as a child, it doesn't feel that way. They feel that they are the cause. Um, with addiction, there's so much profound self-blame. And so trying to find a way to be compassionate, but being very clear, compassion doesn't just mean anything goes, anything I do is fine. Because if anything, the way I like to think about compassion, they'll feel it, but also know it by their behavior, because compassion takes them to a level of stronger action in the world, meaning they're taking better care of themselves, they're relating better to other people, they're able to function, they're able to follow through on responsibilities, that can come from compassion. And it's, basically, it's a, a, a wonderful feedback loop, isn't it? If I treat myself uh, in sobriety with good self-care and nurturing. And I know self-care and nurturing is one of your topic areas. Uh, so if I'm taking care of myself, I'm going to feel like I'm more valuable. And then I am going to um, probably less uh, use of substances. If I am in recovery from alcohol problems or drug problems, then I am going to feel like I have more power over my thoughts and my feelings and my actions. So that's empowering in and of itself. Yeah, you feel better about yourself when you're in recovery. Absolutely. And you're describing beautifully what is sometimes termed an upward spiral. We certainly know there's a downward spiral that can happen with trauma and addiction. Trauma leads to addiction, leads to more trauma, leads to more dysfunction or more pain and on and on. And certainly they all get intertwined. But the upward spiral is exactly what you just said. It's each step, even if it feels so hard to do. Uh, one of my patients once said something very beautiful, which was she just thinks about turning her face toward the light. She doesn't even have to move. She just has to turn toward doing something that's in the right direction. And sometimes it can feel like just making one effort, like brushing one's teeth or getting up and going to work, whatever it may be, is incredibly hard. And people don't know how hard it is, but just making each effort can really build on itself. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I think I really liked in the book was the life choices game, where you basically let the person pick out of a hat. So if they're in a group or individual therapy, and on the piece of paper, it might be, it's, it's a life test, basically, a, a life choices game, where what do you do in this situation, so that you don't do anything unsafe, or you don't do anything that's going to, you know, hurt yourself or your relationships or your recovery. So what would you do, for example, if your father says something critical to you? Uh, what would you do if your boyfriend leaves you or cheats on you? Um, what would you do if you've had a bad day and it's you know Christmas Eve and you think to yourself, everybody else is drinking or using drugs? What do you do if you're triggered uh, by something you're watching in a movie and you start having flashbacks and it's, you know, 10 o'clock at night and you want to drink. I love that life choices game. 
Yeah, and I think it speaks to that the work can be very creative. And one thing that can be really nice when doing that game is to add in scenarios that relate to the individual or to the population, whether it's, we know that many different subgroups are deeply affected by trauma and or addiction, whether it's people living with HIV, whether it's uh, women who have suffered domestic violence, um, combat veterans, et cetera. You can sometimes pull in scenarios that uh, really speak to their experience. And what's also really lovely, I think, about that game is that w- we watch people evolve, that when they first sort of start with seeking safety, they may say, coping, what is coping? I mean, I just drift along, life just happens to me. But right. as they go along, there's a sense of more and more empowerment, more and more options. And so by the time you play that game, now they have a variety of things that they can come forward with. I love that because I maybe I don't think I have agency, if, especially if I've been a victim growing up and then I've been victimized again in a trauma situation. So yeah, what is coping? Some of us who grow up in you know homes where there's a lot of drinking or drugging have never had the opportunity of feeling, I don't know, soothed by a connection with another person. So the therapist or somebody in the group might suggest, well, in that situation, why don't you call somebody? And that person then might call their sponsor for the first time and have a situation where they feel soothed and validated and comforted. So, wow, that's a healthy coping skill that I never had. And that gives me some agency. So I don't have to take a drink, or maybe I could go for a drive. I could go for a walk. I could go for a, you know, go to a meeting. I could take a hot bath. Uh, sometimes, yeah, these coping skills, these healthy coping skills, safe coping skills have to be learned and practiced, right? It's not common sense. Absolutely. And it really goes to one of the really sad facts about both PTSD and substance abuse is that they are highly predicted based on family history, that these things carry across generations. However, many people stop that cycle. And they often do it through learning new coping that they may not have learned growing up. Mm-hmm. And I'll just mention briefly, so a um, couple of years ago, 2019, I came out with a new book called Finding Your Best Self, which was designed for self-help as well as being used in other kinds of settings by uh, professionals, by peers, by family even, and so on. And the reason I mention it is because I think one of the really beautiful aspects is hearing people's own recovery stories. And so every chapter in that book, it's 35 short chapters. It's separate from Seeking Safety. Um, It's new material. It's updated material. But each one, my favorite part is at the end of each chapter, it has recovery voices. And it's basically a person, and it's very diverse in terms of who and what their history was, but a person talking about how that chapter, how that theme relates to their own recovery. And I think that's one of the amazing things to witness is just the the ways that people bring forth so much for their recovery. It, you know, Bessel van der Kolk uh, basically gave a testimonial on this book of yours. He says, this is a terrific book, lucid and eminently practical. Page upon page, she helps you confront what's going on inside of yourself. It's a step-by-step road to recovery from the enslavement of trauma and addiction. This is the sort of book you put by your bedside to visit over and over again. 
as a guide to dealing with numbing addiction and the secrets you try to keep from yourself and underlying issues. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. That's Bessel van der Kolk's testimonial author of Body Keeps the Score. That's pretty good. I mean, I feel so uh, lucky and indebted <laughs> to Bessel for his amazing words and of, more than that, for his impact on the field. I mean, uh, I'm glad you mentioned The Body Keeps the Score because it is a now classic book that came out in 2013, and it so beautifully captures the connection between mind and body and trauma. And it is just a, it, it completely shifted the field in terms of that. So, um, so let me ask you this, Lisa, if you were going to ask, um, if you're going to talk to somebody in the audience today, who's hiding in the house and feels damaged and feels overwhelmed and doesn't know how to feel better. What words of hope would you have for this person with an alcohol or drug problem or an eating disorder with full-blown severe PTSD? What would you say to this person to inspire hope and empowerment? Yeah. You know, I'm going to go to a quotation and seeking safety every chapter and seeking safety as well as finding your best self. It opens with a quotation. So these quotes often express it far better than I could. So Please. I'm going to go to a quote that I find very moving. Yes. Um, and I believe it's Emerson or it might be Thoreau, but one of those 19th century um, uh, New England writers who said, all of life is an experiment. The more experiments, the better. And what I love about that quote is so often in life, and especially if someone, just as you described, is really in the thick of feeling hopeless and not knowing what to do, where to turn, often one of the hardest parts is feeling that they really do not know. And what I love about the quote is it really opens up the idea, just try something. It does not have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to work. It's just try something that might be a step in the right direction, and you'll learn from that. And as long, you know, one thing we say in Seeking Safety, as long as it's um, healthy coping, it's good coping. You know, as long as it's a healthy step. Uh, because I think often you know, we underestimate, we talk so much about the individual, but there's so much pr uh, pressure on a societal level to do well, to be good, to be perfect, to be productive, to move things along. And between trauma, addiction, between the pressures of society and the pace of things, I think people can just often end up just almost paralyzed. Like, what do I do? Yes. And so I do think something. Yeah, just start anywhere. Um, start with one thing you can do right this moment. It might be cleaning a dish, you know. It, so there's no wrong thing as long as it's something that is safe, meaning it's not going to harm you or anybody else. I love that. It, it might be uh, reading inspiring quotes. It might be listening to music. It might be looking at beautiful art. It might be going for a walk. It might be sitting on the porch. It might be praying. The One of the things I love about seeking safety is that you say um, you can create uh, a new story and you can create new tapes and you can create meaning. This is very pervasive through your work, isn't it? It is. And it really harkens to 
if you will, that concept of creating meaning, uh, which is one of the chapters in the book. But it goes back to something I read way back when that trauma survivors who can create some sort of meaning for the future heal quicker or better than those who can't. And that sense of meaning, by the way, just to be clear, it doesn't mean you have to create meaning about the trauma. Trauma may, right. you know, it's uh, trauma is a horrific thing that should never have happened. There doesn't have to be any meaning in the trauma, but right. it's what you do now going forward. And some people really do find some sort of sense of purpose. It might be helping other survivors. It might be just taking care of their kids, you know, better than they were taken care of, or, you know, having a, you know, writing a book or having a pet project or doing artwork or whatever it may be, gardening, anything, yes. but some sense of meaning and purpose that is the antidote to trauma, which, you know, as we know, trauma is pain, it's emptiness, it's, um, you know, suffering. So it's the opposite of all those. I love that. I remember reading Man's Search for Meaning, and that was a written by an Austrian psychiatrist whose whole family ended up in uh, concentration camps during the whole Holocaust. And the importance of finding meaning in his life, right? It, it uh, it's a, again, uh, makes you feel empowered and, and more hopeful. Um, how do people find a wonderful therapist if they really want someone knowledgeable in treating PTSD or how do they go about securing a seeking safety manual and how do you find a therapist willing to work with you on a seeking safety uh, manual? Yeah. So a couple of different ideas. Um, so first of all, just mention broadly uh, in terms of finding a therapist uh, way back when I did my dissertation in graduate school on differences among therapists, and it it found what was found also in a variety of other literature and a lot of other research that, you know, find someone who you feel is helpful to you, and it doesn't relate to years of experience, to how much someone charges, to their gender, to their race, to their... Um, I don't know, to, to any of the sort of easy to measure variables, they don't predict. So the key thing is making sure it's someone that you feel is helpful to you. And you should know that within a few sessions. There's actually research showing it's called therapeutic alliance, which means the connection between the client and the the provider, the counselor, uh, within a few sessions, you should have a good sense. You know, even if you're very early in the work, this feels like this may be useful to me. This feels like uh, I, this person likes me, I like them, um, and there's something valuable going on. If it doesn't feel that way, shop around to the extent you can. We certainly know people have access issues and insurance issues and things like that. But the key thing is don't stay in a treatment for a long time that doesn't feel useful. Treatment will have its ups and downs. You're going to have times, of course, like any relationship where you may be disappointed or feel hurt and on and on. But mm -hmm. the bottom line is the core should be something solid. In terms of specific models, for example, like seeking safety, um, uh, we don't keep a list on our website of everyone who's been trained in it because we don't actually require training. It's a very public health oriented model. And because we focus in the present on safety, we don't require training. We don't require certification. 
Some people choose to list themselves. We offer that option that if someone's doing Seeking Safety and they want to let people know that, they can just email us and we put it on our website. Uh, if you go to the website or just Google Seeking Safety um, and then click on Seeking Safety on the left menu, it'll say how to locate uh, providers. But that being said, most aren't listed there. So the other path some people do is they just um, find out if their therapist might be willing to do it. Isn't that wonderful that it's uh, it's so easy? You could down you could actually uh, obtain a seeking safety manual, find yourself a therapist who likes you, who validates you, who is interested in getting to know you, that you feel comfortable with, and then you could take this seeking safety manual if you want to the therapist and say, "Would you work?" with uh, me on this manual. And it's, it's very straightforward and very easy to follow. And the therapist doesn't need training on it. It's, it's wonderful. Absolutely. Well, uh, that's great. I love the way you just said it. And I will also say very, very humbly that we certainly know there are many different models out there. Um, you know, I in no way am trying to, you know, sell, promote, push seeking safety. I mean, it's it's like the what what it says in the book about using coping skills. If it's helpful, use it. If it's not, find something that is. Well, the key thing is finding help that feels helpful. And the you are not endorsing it. The only reason you are on this show is because I bought your manual at an American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry uh, conference way back uh, in the early two thousands, and immediately opened it up and you know was very ravenously uh, devouring this book. It was was wonderfully practical and helpful and kind. And I loved your quotations. There, um, I, I just can't say enough about the manual. So yeah, you don't have to endorse it. I, I will. Um, what about apps? Do you have any apps to tell us about in uh, 2021? The world seems to be very focused on apps. You know, uh, there are several apps that um, I and my team here are developing. Uh, we've gotten funding. We, we feel very lucky. We got funding from the National Institutes of Health to develop three different apps. One of them is Seeking Safety. And we do have current studies, by the way, if anyone is interested. Um, it's on our website. We have a section called Join Our Studies. Uh, and so right now, for at least some period of time ongoing, we're going to be um, uh, having people join our studies if they want to, and then they can experience the apps that way. Uh, but one of them is on seeking safety, and it's designed for peer-led seeking safety, um, which, by the way, I'll just say one of my favorite research findings was a study done several years ago by Dr. Annette Crisanti at the University of New Mexico that found that peer-led seeking safety did just as well as professionally led, which is oh, just, wow. I think, very beautiful. Um, so that's and, somebody in recovery from PTSD and substance use disorder who's leading a group. Exactly. Someone wow. with lived experience, uh, someone who does not have professional credentials. And we, uh, as part of that project, they got the same training and the same, uh, you know, just research support as, um, as the professionals, and they did just as well in terms of their outcomes. So that was lovely to see. And so this app was um, designed to be able to be used by peers, as well as 
professionals and anyone else. And basically, it has rolling content each week is a different seeking safety topic. So one of the 25 and the content rolls over. uh, So the person has access to different um, quizzes and power ups and daily quests and things like that, the the handouts change, etc. each week. And then there's a weekly live session, a one hour session, that's a group session that's done um, through Zoom. So it's for anyone in the US. And so that's one of the apps. That's the one I think I'm I'm really excited about because we certainly know most people who have trauma and or addiction do not end up in professional care. So any options where technology or peer support can help, absolutely, all to the better. And there's such power in a group. Yes. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Very exciting. The second app is on grounding. So exactly going to what you referred to a short while ago. Uh, Grounding is just such a core skill. So the grounding app um, really tries to take grounding and expand it and make it visual and create a lot of different engagement. The third app is, uh, I think, a really interesting one from a technology standpoint. We certainly know people with trauma and or addiction may or may not be in touch enough with their emotions or with their underlying emotions. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may sort of express anger all the time because they're not noticing the sadness underneath or vice versa. So at any rate, this method um, on this other app, it's called self-aware. Basically, it uh, uses automated assessment of face, voice, and if the person chooses to write, of their writing. And it analyzes their emotions automatically using very advanced, um, uh, big, what's called machine learning, sort of huge big data kind of methods that happen behind the scenes. And it compares their self-report, they're asked to say, how much do you feel? Anger, sadness, etc. So they self-report it, the machine, uh, the app is assessing it through this you know, machine learning algorithm. Wow. And then it compares the two. <laughs> and it tells you how you're feeling if you are a dis- dissociated, disconnected person with trauma and substance use. This That's magnificent. So you don't have to pass around the, the chart of feeling faces. That's magnificent. And how do they access these apps? How do they find more information on these apps? Yeah, the apps are going to be available um, starting, and they'll be available on both uh, Google Play and the App Store um, for Apple products. Um, They'll be available either late this fall or early next winter. And uh, the names are Seeking Safety, Ground Now, and Self-Aware. And I will just give the caveat with Self-Aware that um, it's sort of an experimental approach. There's a lot happening in this area of automated emotion detection. So sometimes uh, it gets it right and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, But I think it is just, it, it reinforces the idea of being aware of one's emotions. That, that is mind-blowing and really exciting. And I'll look for those in September of 2021. Uh, we're at the end of the show. Any parting words for the people out there suffering from PTSD and substance use disorder? I think the final message, if I had to convey one, would be stay safe. I mean, that is just really the bottom line, if you can just stay safe long enough to keep working on recovery, we know that recovery takes a while, uh, certainly for profound trauma or profound addiction, and just keep making safe choices that help move you 
just in the right direction. And I have seen so many people, I have been so privileged to, to witness recovery from, and we all have who have you know, been involved in this for any time period, to see people who have changed, who seemed so down and out. And when they look back in their words, they, they often felt incredibly hopeless, but they found ways. So just keep it up. Those are wonderful parting words of hope. So this is treatable, substance use disorder and PTSD, and you don't have to treat one and then the other. It's better to treat both at the same time. And this is a very, very gentle, uh, very safe approach where you don't have to jump into the telling of the trauma. You don't have to be focused on the past. You can be focused on the present. So Dr. Lisa Najibetz, I'm so honored uh, to have you on the show. And Really, uh, I think you've offered some wonderful uh, words of wisdom to help people suffering from PTSD and substance use disorders. So thank you very much. And I hope uh, uh, everybody goes to your website to check it out. And the website is www.seekingsafety, that's all one word, .org, or just pops the word seeking safety into Google. And Patricia, I just really have to thank you uh, for the work you do and for your compassion and understanding. Oh, you're more than welcome. I think we're on the same page. All right, everybody, this is uh, Recovery, the Hero's Journey. And uh, my guest host, Dr. Lisa Najibitz, uh, signing off. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.